Hello, all you wonderful listeners. This is Julie Baumgartner, and welcome to another episode of Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner, where we talk with specialists in their field of expertise to encourage, motivate, and equip those with big dreams to rise up and achieve their goals. Our guests bring valuable tips and resources to apply to your own life and go forward on your path to success. Our guests have a following either because of their expertise, have given back and invested in their communities, or have engaged in relationship building contributing to their success. Today on Rise Up, we have a licensed realtor and entrepreneur working out of Northwest Arkansas. He is an avid student of business and economics, and at 19 years old is a self-proclaimed personal development junkie with a passion for helping people and a desire to build organizations that will create lasting change. And full disclosure, he is my son, and I have asked him to speak on behalf of and to Generation Z. Today, we welcome Cameron Dye. Do you listen to podcasts or do you watch videos? What is your news source? I mean, yes, I do listen to podcasts and I watch videos too. I learn a lot of different ways just because that's it just depends on what I'm doing. Like if I'm driving, I'll be listening to a podcast. If I'm at home not really doing anything, I'll either be reading or watching a video. So it's just kind of what's most convenient. As far as the news sources are concerned, I'd Have say... Have you ever watched the news? No. Does anyone your age watch the news? Not really. Well, I mean, part of that I think is due in part to the fact that like cable television, just people my age don't watch cable like, no one I know really watches TV. They'll watch YouTube, maybe Netflix. I do know some of them that, like, follow popular news organizations on Instagram. Like what? So, like, Fox or CNN has, like, Instagram accounts, and people get their news through that. I know Twitter's a big one as well, and I think that's just for kind of everyone. People go on Twitter. Is that people's opinions, or do you think that's news? Well, some. I mean, some of it is news. Like, a lot of journalists on there have accounts where they'll talk about like stories and they'll include links to an article they've written or that sort of thing. So I think a lot of it is actual journalism. But then again, that can sometimes be inaccurate because a lot of people's biases kind of slips in there. And, you know, it's prevalent on both sides. So, but I I think Twitter can be a good place. If you really like make sure you navigate it correctly, you can find some good information on there. A lot of it's just having, I guess you could say the self-awareness or just common sense to kind of not always believe what you hear because a lot of people just headline read on Twitter. They'll go through like a popular journalist account that'd be like, this is horrible. And they'll jump onto the bandwagon. You read the story and you're like, that's not even really what they said, you know? So I think there's a lot of that going on, but I try and be careful about that and try and avoid it. Of your top five friends, what do you think their career goals are? Their career goals? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know if all of them have that figured out yet. And I mean, I wouldn't expect them to. Yeah. You know, they're only 18, 19, some of them 20 years old. You know, that's a tough one. Do you think it's stressful at your age to not know what you want to do? I mean, I think, I guess to a degree, especially if you're in college or in school, or even if you're not really. But I think it's also completely normal. And I think people know that. I think you just have to be careful to not use that as an excuse to just kind of like waste your time. Like you need to be comfortable not knowing while continuing to try and figure it out. It's kind of like a little odd paradox there. 
Because I think a lot of people, they're like, it's fine. And then they get this like impression that, well, that means I can just not try and figure it out. And I don't think that's right. But I also don't think you should be sitting here like stressed out and being like, I don't know what I want to do. And like really just always like really uptight about it. I think, you know, there's some middle ground there. And I think if you can find that for yourself, you're in a pretty good position. I remember when Luke was over at our house and I was trying to get him to explain to me, this was what, two years ago, what take a knee meant. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that, in all honesty. And, and at the time, I think it made him very uncomfortable. And I just wanted to hear his perspective. I wanted to understand it. Yeah. Because it was really, it was a, I don't know, do you call it a movement? I don't know what you call it. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was then, and it certainly is now. You know, looking back in hindsight, I wish that more people had taken that seriously when it first came up because I think a lot of the pain that our country's feeling now could have been alleviated if we'd really addressed but, it at the time. But that's just it. I don't think people understood it. I don't think people wanted to understand it. Why? There were a lot of Why people out there trying to explain what it was, but I think people got so caught up in the symbolism of it that they missed the message that he was trying to portray. Because Colin Kaepernick said from the beginning, I mean, he got the idea to kneel from a veteran. And his whole idea wasn't to disrespect the flag. It was just to show that, you know, we've, and speaking on behalf of kind of what he was trying to say, I always interpret it as as he thought that, you know, this flag as of right now doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for me and, you know, people like me in our history in this country as as it does for you guys. And we want to address that in a way that's respectful. And I, I think Colin Kaepernick did a pretty good job of that, in all honesty, looking back in hindsight and kind of going about it the way he did. But I think there were a lot of people out there that just wanted to see him, you know, as this progressive activist that, you know, didn't like the troops and didn't respect America. I don't think that's ever what he was going for. I think his message was accidentally, and in some cases, purposely misconstrued in order to kind of silence that message. And I, unfortunately it worked. And now we're seeing what his, that these underlying tensions that have been there since then. And since well before then they're starting to bubble to the surface because you can't just sweep problems like this under the rug or else they just grow in was, magnitude. Let's say the purpose behind it was good, but do you think he was the wrong person to do it? Because I think a lot of people saw him as having the most privileged life. Do you think it would have gone over better if it had been someone besides Kaepernick? And I'm am saying that because I think people who did not agree with what he was doing, that he had had a somewhat privileged life, that they could not identify with him mm-hmm. taking up that cause. So do you think had it been uh, a different NFL player, it would have been received better. I don't really think so, in all honesty. I think the attack on him that he lived a privileged life was kind of, I think it was kind of a lazy effort to downplay what he was trying to do. Because I don't think he necessarily had to experience massive oppression or massive hardship to have a perspective on that and to feel that it's important. Because there are things that all of us feel are important that we haven't personally necessarily experienced. You know, there are things that we all stand for that, you know, don't always necessarily affect us on a massive scale in day-to-day life. 
that doesn't mean they're any less important. We can care about things that don't directly affect us, and I think in many cases we do and we should. On college campus, what do you think the temperature was with students? For it? Against it? Indifferent? That was well before I was in college, so I can't really speak on that. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, at least with our current state, that wasn't that long ago. I'm assuming there was a decent amount of support for it. I think as of late with the protests and things that we've seen going on and it becoming more normalized, I'd say, that there is growing support for it in kids and young adults that I think previously wouldn't have, particularly among young women in college. And I just know that from personal experience, just from people I followed through high school and now in college that traditionally came from conservative families that probably had some conservative beliefs that I say have now kind of swapped over. Why? I think it's a lot of things. I think one of it has to do with the education they're receiving in college. And I think another thing just, I think that happens when you get in an environment where there are a lot of different ideas. And if you're raised up in a conservative household and you're never really thoroughly explained, you know, why your family has the ideals they have, it's just kind of what you've always been exposed to. As soon as you're exposed to those different ideas, you know, you're able to talk with people about it, you start to realize there is some merit in other opinions. And I think if you don't have, you know, a solid backing of knowledge to support your beliefs, it leaves them very susceptible to being altered, especially when you enter an environment where there is so much, you know, different opinion on things, which is what college is, and it's what it's supposed to be. How have you changed your ideology or political stance Mm -hmm. in the last year? I'd say I've shifted, you know, that's kind of a tough question. I'd say I've shifted more economically liberal. I'd consider myself now to be a classical liberal, which would probably most closely equate to libertarian in terms of political affiliation. I try and remain independent of that because there are some things that I disagree with. I think you need to be practical, and I think a lot of our parties go wrong by being too ideological with things. But I'd say economically I've shifted more liberal. Socially and civilly, I've shifted more liberal as well, which is probably to the left, not the right. So... Are are you familiar with the political compass? Do you know what that do you know what that is? Mm. Okay, so it's actually a test you can take online. I'd recommend anyone that hasn't done it to do it because it's actually really telling of kind of what you think and kind of politically where you stand on things. So there are four quad. We're going to get back to that, but I hate that there is so much emphasis right now that you're left or you're right or you're Democrat or you're Republican. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know that I'm either. Well, well that's why the political compass. And I don't compass. know that I mm-hmm. – I didn't raise you to be either. Yeah. And, I mean, I think there's always – there's good and bad on both sides. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Yeah, so that actually kind of relates back to where I was going with the political okay. compass. So th- there are two axes on the political compass. So it separates the graph into four quadrants. So in the upper right-hand quadrant, you have authoritarian right. In the upper left-hand quadrant, you have authoritarian left. In the bottom left-hand quadrant, you have libertarian left. And in the bottom right-hand quadrant, you have libertarian right. So the axis that goes horizontally is in relation to economic, economic like rights. So the further you go right, the more economically free you get. The further you go left, the more economically strict you get. And then the vertical axis is in relation to social liberties. So the higher up you go, 
the less social liberty there is, the more suppression there is on freedoms and that sort of thing. The lower you go, the less suppression there is. So I, I'm in the bottom right-hand quadrant, which is libertarian, right? So I think people should have the freedom to do what they want in their personal lives, their social lives, and they should have the freedom to do what they want with their money. I think that is the logical application of the principle of consent and liberties across all spectrums. I think that's the best way to organize a civilized society, personally. A person having the right to do what they want with their own body. I mean, I think we're like right now, to wear a mask, to not wear a mask mm-hmm. is a big, big deal to some. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal to others. But, you know, I was thinking as I'm driving here today, I'm like, I've got this seatbelt on. Mm-hmm. And that became a law to protect me. So what's the difference between having a law to protect you in your vehicle, to protect mm-hmm. you from catching the coronavirus from someone else? Or are you spreading it to someone yeah. else? So, you know, and then I think about, well, we now, we had laws. You have to have a baby in a car seat mm-hmm. up to a certain age, up to a certain weight, and they have to be strapped in. And, you know, there's all sort of codes and regulations for that car seat mm-hmm. to be deemed safe. Yeah. So, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I feel infringed upon in mm-hmm. my rights if it's done for my protection. Yeah. So he, here's my opinion on that. Mm-hmm. And this is where I differ from libertarians because my views on, you know, where you should have liberties and where you shouldn't are a little more nuanced. Okay. So, the, the primary libertarian view on this is that you should be free to do anything you want so long as that it doesn't infringe upon the rights of others. So a libertarian view would be you shouldn't have to wear a seatbelt because that's your choice and it's not government's right to, if you want to come, come in and step it in. As far as the seatbelt thing is concerned, I think that's kind of silly. I mean, I think you should wear a seatbelt. Yeah, I won't get into that too much, that, that part, because that's not really that important to me. As far as the masks are concerned, though, I disagree with libertarians on this because I think that does violate the non-aggression principle because I think if you don't wear a mask in public, you are, by doing so, risking contaminating other people, which is an infringement upon their rights. you are not quarantining yourself, if you know you have Mm COVID-19 and you're out and about, that's wrong. Yeah, that is. I, I would agree with that. I would consider that an infringement on others' rights. And the typical libertarian thing is, well, if you don't like it, you don't have to go out and get groceries. But that's not really true. You have to go out and buy things because you need things to survive, right? So I, I think the mask thing is perfectly warranted. And that's you know one of the issues I differ with most people that kind of hold similar viewpoints to mine. Because I, I think it needs a little more nuance than simply people... I think it needs more nuance than people give it a lot of times. And I I think that applies to a lot of issues. But yeah, I'm on board with mandatory masks in in most cases, I would definitely say for sure. Did you get sucked into all the drama about videos being pulled, not being pulled? or? I saw a little bit about it on Instagram, about the, what is it, the hydrochloroquine or whatever. I'm not a doctor. I can't voice my opinions on any of that. I will say this. Private companies have the right to take down whatever information they want to from their their sites. It's a private company. They're they're not legally liable to allow freedom of speech within their... You're talking Facebook and YouTube and all that. Yeah. 
So, so there are a lot of people that are like, well, that violates my freedom of speech. No, a violation on freedom of speech would be a public institution, meaning the government suppressing your right to speak about certain things. Private corporation is not the government. They can keep you from doing it on their site. They can't keep you from doing it altogether. That's the difference. Private companies have no obligation to provide freedom of speech to you through their platform. Well, the only inequality in it is there's probably not um, any other platforms where billions of people are on it currently. Facebook, Mm -hmm. YouTube, and so people... Build one. Build one. Seriously. Well, and like, that's, that's my viewpoint on but it. But then, you know, then you're behind the curve. How do you, you get are behind all the these curve, billions of people that doesn't over give to you, your new platform? Yeah, but that doesn't give you the right to infringe on that private company's rights to keep whatever they want on their website. Right? You're voluntarily agreeing to use their service. Well, they get to control I get the rules it. of engagement. I don't like it. Well, I know you don't I, like I it. Like, it. I don't necessarily like it either. But there's a difference between not liking something and saying the government should step in and force something to happen. Well, but I think a lot of people are in the, I don't like it, so it shouldn't. It sh-. A lot so of people think people things they thinks, don't like shouldn't be legal. And I disagree with that. Like what? Well, I mean, a great example of this is is Ben Shapiro, right? So I, I like Ben Shapiro in certain ways. Certain elements, I disagree with him strongly. So... One example is he was he took the political compass test and in that video he has to answer, you know, a long series of questions and I agree with Ben on a lot of economic things because he is an economic liberal, but he's not necessarily a social and civil liberal because he is Jewish and he does have opinions on, you know, religion and that sort of thing. So like one of the questions for example was I think pornography should be illegal. And he he selected like I think like likely to align with his viewpoint. So he's like, I don't think this is like necessarily what the U S should do, but he's like, if it could be done, I'd want to do it. Like, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the government's place to decide that thing. If you want to do it, you should have the right to do it. Um, it's your responsibility to make the right choice, but you should have the freedom to make that choice. And that, that applies to my opinions on a lot of things. So what's your opinion on abortion? Abortion's a tricky one for me. And I, I'll say this, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Like, I'm perfectly comfortable saying I don't know on that. Because for me, I can see it really rationally from both sides. So the question for me becomes, is the baby actually part of your body? If it is, I'm for abortion. If it's not... I'm not for abortion because for me, I don't know if it violates the non-aggression principle or not, because really the key issue is this. At what point does it become an autonomous individual human being? And at what point is it just your body, right? So the pro-abortion people are going to go out there or the pro-choice, sorry. They're going to say, well, it's the woman's right. It's her body. It's her right to choose. My question is, I don't know if it's actually her body. Well, but that's such a subjective way. There's is, not really like, I don't know. It's a tricky issue for me, and I really don't have a clear answer for. It. I I can't give you an answer to that. I don't know. And I wish I knew because that's a really hot button topic. But I really don't know. Well, the way I think it, here's here's your body. Preconception. 
Now you tell me how that body has changed after conception. So either you are with child or you are without child. Mm -hmm. And so your body became your body plus one at conception. Yeah. It's just the issue of like, because fundamentally if, if you're against abortion, that means you should, you're forcing the woman to have the child, which seems on the face of it, like it'd be, you're imposing something on someone. But then at the same time, you're not forcing. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't allow abortion, you are fundamentally forcing that woman to give birth and have a child and go through with that process, whether or not she wants to. It doesn't matter if it gets but adopted no one afterwards. Her to get pregnant. Hmm? But no one forced her to get pregnant. I know, but pregnancies can happen accidentally. Well, and we all know that. Yes. Or. By, and I'm not advocating for you to go around and, you know, not practice safe sex or anything like that but i'm just saying you i mean i don't know it's a really tricky issue for me that i don't have a clear answer on and unfortunately i can't give one because i look at it like this so it's just it's hard for me i've talked about this with several of my friends and i i really can't sort it out for myself because it seems like either way i go it's it's a violation of kind of what I believe. So I'll just say I won't comment <laughs> for now. You know, is it 50-50, you think? I'd say I lean more towards pro-choice, in all honesty. But I'm not, like, pro-choice. What do you think in your, in Generation Z? Oh, without a doubt, pro-choice. Not even remotely close. Why? I mean, maybe there are I mean, some. What, what are their arguments? I mean, it, it's just progress. It's just progressive. I mean, it's social and civil liberties. It, it's what progressivism is. Although we we don't need to diverge into that right now. I mean, it's just they see it as it's the woman's body. Therefore, it's her, her right to choose whether or not she wants to have the child. And if she gets accidentally pregnant, they think, well, just because someone's accidentally pregnant doesn't give you the right to force her to have that child if she doesn't want to do that. If she doesn't want to take that direction in her life. How many of your friends were raised in a conservative environment and still have that view? Okay. I'd say off the top of my head, there are only, there's one and a half friends that wasn't raised in a conservative environment. And I say one and a half because one of my friends has a parent that's conservative and a parent that's liberal. So not very many, but a lot of them are shifting more liberal. And right. I think that's just due to their generation, people my age are, you know, becoming more progressive. And I think a lot of that's due to media, it's due to social media, having more access to that sort of information and those sorts of ideas. And also just the type of people that they like, you know, celebrities and stuff are becoming more progressive. So it's becoming more popular, more normalized and acceptable to be that way. So the people they look up to are doing it and the people around them are doing it. They see that information on social media all the time. And a lot of it is accurate and a lot of it seems accurate. So they kind of buy into it pretty quickly, especially as they start to grow and get out of the house and meet new people with different ideas. I think it amazes me. You use the term accurate. You know, I don't know. <clears throat> well, I said some of it's accurate. Well, it depends on what we're talking about, because that's a very broad description. 
It is. Because there's a lot of it that I wouldn't say is accurate. I would say that there's a lot of people who do not understand your generation. Mm -hmm. And they do not understand your views. And I try to look at it as, you know, they may not have all the answers. They may not even be right. Mm -hmm. But do they have the right to try? And should we give them that right to try? Well, they absolutely have the right to try. Well, and you can't give them the right to try. The only thing you could do is take it away, fundamentally speaking. But what that might mean to the future of America. Well, could, uh, you have I mean, to look it, at it like this. You can either give pre- people the freedoms to try or you can suppress their freedoms, which is just going to result in the same thing that you're fearing. So fundamentally, you have to let this progress or else you become the very thing that you fear it will turn into. Authoritarian is always wrong, no matter if it's on the right or the left side. Do you think we have lived under an authoritarian government? Not on the whole. I think the principles America was built on are very good. I think, unfortunately, in our past, we failed to live up to those principles many, many times. I wouldn't say so we've lived under an authoritarian. that doesn't mean the way that it is is bad. It just means that— It means there could be elements of it. It means that mankind has failed mankind yeah. on several occasions. Mm-hmm. And to expect— us to not fail one another in the future is naive. It is very naive. And that is why, that's why I support a, a society built on, you know, liberties and freedoms. Because if you have one that's built on systems that are just created by man to try and institute some type of utopia, it's impossible. The, the more power you cede to any sort of authority, the more room there is for corruption. So if you try and create a utopia in my, I just think it's a very naive goal. And I would agree with you on that. I think there are certain principles that we can orient our societies around that make it as good as possible. And I think a lot of those ideas have been very hard fought for, for thousands and thousands of years. And one of those ideas is that every man, woman, and you know, person out there is born with natural rights that they have. And there's a reason that's included in the very fundamental framework of our government. Unfortunately, our government hasn't always abided by those rules. There are several laws on the books right now that I feel don't abide by those rules at all. So I think the underlying principles of America are good, and I think at times we've lived up to them in certain ways that are good, and there are times that we failed to live up to them in certain ways that are very bad. And I think you kind of have to look at that realistically and take both of it in and recognize, you know, we aren't, you know, this amazing moral authority that's always been great but there are elements of us that has always been great and things that we can be proud of while also recognizing the bad but i think both sides just wants to do one of those things they either want to tear it all down because they hate it or they want to love it all and think that we're just the best thing that's ever been and you know we were always justified in that sort of crap so i think it just deserves a little more nuance in the conversation would it be accurate if i lumped everyone in your generation that you just want you want change i'd say that'd be appropriate for any generation i mean young people in general kind of have a complex where they want to institute positive change that's been documented pretty well in psychological literature and you look back throughout history especially in times of turmoil a lot of it was led by young people so i don't think that's unusual i just think right now a lot of issues that have kind of been bubbling under the surface are coming to the surface and young people are kind of the people leading that charge forward I don't always agree with the direction that they're trying to take, 
but I absolutely respect that they want to make things better. And I think a lot of it is well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. I just think so some of it's miseducated, how, misguided. How would we channel that to be positive change? I think a lot of it, excuse me, I think a lot of it starts with getting the right information out there and debating people on these sorts of ideas in a way that's not antagonistic. Because the big issue I see being played right now by both both sides of the political spectrum is identity politics. So, and, and I'm seeing it more and more, and I don't really know when this really started, but we're seeing you know, conservatives just lumping all the liberals together and calling them communists or libtards or just something offensive and mm-hmm. writing off every idea they have as them just being stupid. That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Don't make that mistake. We need both sides of the you political spectrum. Absolutely, we need them. And you cannot write off someone else's ideas as just them being stupid. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing. You need to take other people's ideas seriously and see if they have merit and see if they have worth and really talk them through with people. And we see the same thing being played by people on the left. All the ideas they're construing it as racism or oppression or that sort of thing. Some of those things are accurate. Some of those things are accurate on both sides. But you can't just lump everyone together and call them something and just totally disregard all of their ideas because it's a very high likelihood that you're wrong about something in there that has value that can contribute in a positive way to society. So I think we need to be really careful about not being antagonistic about these discussions and really just approaching it from you know a collaborative point of view instead of an attacking point of view. Because if we're just trying to go after people and make them look stupid, they're just going to dig the, their heels in more. And I think that's something that's being done increasingly by both the right and the left, especially on the media. So oh. I think that's really unfortunate. It is. It's, it's created, to me, an unnecessary war. Um, oh, yes. Because the more Absolutely. you yeah. uh, antagonize one another the less you find grounds to agree upon um, mm. and the less you will listen to each other. Yeah. Well, people people are retreating more and more into their own groups. And Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian psychologist, he was talking about some psychological literature in a podcast. I, I listened to his of the other day. He was talking about the way we orient ourselves into groups and how the more we start to identify with our group identity, the larger our capacity grows for violence towards other groups. That's something that we've noticed time and time again throughout history, and it seems to be a very biological thing. So the more we start to see ourselves as a member of a group, whether that's Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or left or right or whatever it is, the larger your capacity grows for hatred and resentment towards other groups, and the larger that capacity grows towards violence. So we need to be really careful about seeing ourselves as individuals that are capable of having intelligent, civilized discussions instead of just seeing ourselves as a member of a group that's at war with another group. That's a very dangerous line of thinking. And that sort of collectivist seed ideology started, has caused directly some of the worst atrocities in human history. I mean, it played out several times in the 20th century, and I don't think we want to repeat that. We need to learn our lesson. Yeah. So let's talk about the two-party system mm-hmm. because I've— I feel we're just knocking heads. For America to change, it's just going to be more conflict Yeah. until we need a better alternative than what we Yeah. Well, I think part of it is just the even the idea of party systems themselves kind of tend towards what we're seeing now. Because what you see is as, you know, one or two parties starts to gain some size, they start to adopt some of the viewpoints of other parties and people wanting some of their ideas to win kind of all flock together and they just tends to concentrate in the hands of just like we see now just two parties most of the votes concentrate within those two parties 
I don't well, think I, that's a good I thing. I think right though. now we have. I don't want to get so political on here, but I'm letting you talk because <laughs> yeah. you're on here because you represent Generation Z mm. and we want to hear your viewpoint. And also, you know, you have a pulse on what is current and what is mm-hmm. popular and what is trending yeah. to your generation. Mm-hmm. What idea is the media trying to sell your generation? What they want to hear. And, and what what do they want to hear? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. Just turn on you know, the TV or social media. I mean, media organizations are private companies. They're motivated by profit. So because of that, they're going to give people what they want to hear. And a lot of that is emotionally charged, divisive rhetoric. And that's going to be prevalent on pretty much every side, no matter what you look at, just because that's what pays the bills. You know, the more emotional and riled up you can get people, the more headlines they're going to click on, the more times they're going to comment, the more times they're going to like and share. And it's just, they're directly incentivized to kind of be divisive. And that's something we really need to take into account. And that's one reason why I don't really like getting a lot of my news from those sources because I just really don't trust it that much. You know, and I, I don't blame it on the moral fault of the people doing it. I think any person in a similar position would do that. So you need to have some empathy with that, not just go out and hate all the media organizations because the odds that if you were, you know, and the C to CEO that you do any better, very low. So just, Take the individual responsibility upon yourself instead of going out and blaming the media companies, you know, go and do some independent research and really dig deep for yourself. But in terms of the ideas that are kind of being peddled right now, like I said, I don't really think they're trying to sell us anything. I just think that both the progressives and conservatives, which I would say are the two main kind of ideas we're seeing floating around right now, they're both quickly accelerating in opposite directions. I'd say conservatives are getting a little more, I don't want to say authoritarian, but I, you know what? No, I'm comfortable with that. Both sides are getting more authoritarian in different ways. I don't like that on both sides. I don't agree with either of that because it's a very dangerous game to play and it runs very contrary to my own beliefs. But that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of divisiveness now. I think Trump's election had a lot to do with that. And I think a lot of that goes into the fact that he discovered that it's a very powerful political tactic to bully and troll people. You go on his Twitter, that's pretty much primarily what he does. So he trolls the people on the left. And when he trolls the people on the left, people on the right cheer. And I think it's great and I think it's good. And they're like, oh, this is great and hilarious. And he's really showing it to him. And that's escalated conflict and divisiveness between the two. And I think that's only accelerated our kind of disposition towards group identity politics. Because everyone on the right, not everyone, and I don't, I don't want to play the same game here. Some people on the right will do everything in their power to enrage the left. And that only makes the left hate them more and, you know, lash out more and more. Well, I think, as you said, every generation wants change. Mm-hmm. And even not the, the current generation. Mm-hmm. But I think people were ready for change. They wanted someone who was not a politician. Mm-hmm. They wanted someone who was different. Because they were dissatisfied with how oh, government... I, and no, no, let me finish. I'll let you finish. I, I'll let you finish. Let finish. I think... Okay, then now this is just me. I saw him suddenly attacked, and probably he felt he had to defend himself. But have I sat back and I'm like, oh, Trump, reword that. Because people need to hear mm-hmm. your heart. 
on issues. Mm -hmm. If you allow people to hear your heart and be genuine and sincere and explain yourself a little more Mm -hmm. as opposed to this is what we're going to do, sometimes, you know, people respond Mm -hmm. better if you tell them why you're doing something the way that you're doing it because this is the outcome that should happen. But I also, you know, during his press times when COVID-19 was happening, Mm. I heard him very endearingly engage America. I mean, there there was heartfelt concern there. But the issue was that very few people heard that. And I don't know that anyone would call Trump a sensitive man. They would say that he was overbearing, and I don't think it's a fair snapshot of him. I think it's very fair, and I'll tell you why in a second, but Um, but I'll let you finish your thought. I don't know if everyone saw the complete picture, if it would change minds, or, you know, I think some of them are just so against him now, nothing, you know, he could walk on water and and they still like him. Yeah, Um, well, I'll say this. In my playbook— As far as what he's done and the way he approaches things, Trump is without a doubt one of the most horrendous leaders I've ever seen in my entire life. Why? He purposely divides this country with the way he speaks about the opposing sides in a way that is very antagonistic. Do you and think very, he started that or, or the other I absolutely it? believe without a doubt that it's on both sides. But I think as the leader of the free world, it is your job to rise above that. But I think it's a very purposeful play by him because it's something he's been doing even when he was campaigning, which is if he can get the Republicans and the conservatives to think that he's going to fight the liberals, he's going to get votes in such astronomical numbers that it won't matter. The more emotionally riled up he can get people, the better. And it's because identity politics are being played on both sides. They see Democrats as the enemy, and the more angry we can make them, the more outraged we can cause them to be the more things we can do to fight them the better off we're going to be and that's the way people see it and i think that's a horrible way to run a country i think any leader that purposely divides the people who he's leading into two separate camps and pits them against one another should be absolutely not allowed into office and that is what trump has been doing but you know i really don't have an interest in who started it every president's had opposition i really that doesn't bother me at all as a president, you have to rise above that. Occasionally, he'll present a policy that's not terrible, although I don't really like a lot of his policies either. For example, he engaged us in economic protectionism. He got us in a trade war, which does nothing but hurt consumers. He tried to claim, he did it to cl- try and bring American jobs back. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't really work. Those taxes are okay. pretty much just passed what on to consumers. What has he done that you do like? What has he done that I do like? I would have liked the tax cuts if he had cut spending first, but he didn't do that. And every time that conservative politicians do that, it gives supply-side economics a bad look because supply-side economics states that if you cut taxes, you're going to increase production, which is going to grow the economy. That sounds great, but if you don't cut spending first, all you're doing is financing your government spending with debt, which inflates the currency and kind of negates out some of that productive growth, which actually hurts the people of the country more than it helps. Why do you think the president is responsible for America's economy? I don't think he's responsible, but I'm saying as far as any policy that he's done that I don't hate, one of those would be, you know, the tax cuts that he presented and that got passed. I mean, realistically, in four years or in eight years, mm-hmm. no one can turn the economy around. I mean, there has to be some consistent 
well thought out plan and you can't plan when you never know what the next 10 years mm-hmm. um, who's going to be in office who's going to be in the house who's going to be in the senate mm-hmm. why do you think a president or a leader should have less freedom of speech than anyone else I don't think the way you framed that is fair. I think they do have freedom of speech. I just think they need to be responsible about how they use it. I'm not saying that we should use government to force Trump to speak a certain way. I'm just saying I don't think he should speak a certain way. Very different things. What do you seek out in others that is valuable to you? I mean, I think it's honestly just some of the traditional traits that we deem to be virtuous. And, you know, people that have character have certain traits. And I think those are going to be honesty, work ethic, I'd say creativity and ambition are some of the big ones that I look for because I think you have enough people like that in your life. They bring a lot of positives. I also like people that have differing opinions than me because I think not only is it fun to discuss, but it makes both of us better being able to talk about that openly. And even if I'm wrong and you're right, that makes me better as well. You know, it's not an ego thing. It's always about we need to work together to find what the truth of this is. Who have your role models been? That's a tough one. That's a really tough one because I have different role models in different areas of my life that I care about. There are a lot of people I listen to and read that I really respect a lot. Well, I'll kind of take it back and I'll go into the two people that really kind of got me interested in self-development and then through that business and then through that economics and politics and that sort of thing. So I'd say the first person that I really look up to is Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian clinical psychologist. He teaches at the University of Toronto, and before that, he taught at Harvard. And I I think I stumbled across some of his videos probably in my junior year of high school. And something about not only the way he spoke, but the message he was putting out really resonated with me. And just to kind of encapsulate what he's talking about, he promotes individual responsibility a lot and how you need to find meaning in something in your life and assign responsibility to yourself to pursue that meaning. And that by doing so, you're going to be able to get through the hard parts in your life because it's going to give you something to orient yourself towards. And something about that messaging and how he was able to articulate that in a really powerful way really moved me. And that kind of led me down this rabbit hole of, well, maybe I should start figuring out what I want to do. And then that led me to getting into business and finance. First, it was just finance. And then through that, I started listening to uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a social media personality, I guess you could say. But that's kind of unfair to judge him as that. He's actually just a businessman. He runs a media firm that does advertising for Fortune 500 companies. And he's kind of a marketing guru, you could say. But he also kind of does motivational speaking, that sort of thing. Very charismatic guy. And he talks a lot about, you know, the need to find what you value and pursue it and be comfortable taking risks and don't be scared to fail because, you know, you don't want to get to the end of your life and look back and think, what if? You know, you don't want to play the safe game because life's too short. You only get one. And just the fact that you're here is so incredibly unlikely that to squander it away on just simply going the safe route, never taking risks towards something you'd be passionate about, would really be a waste of your time and the life and the gift that you've been given. So Gary Vaynerchuk had a really big impact on me and also formulating kind of the mindset I have now about how I approach things. So I think I owe a lot to those two. And also Gary preached a lot about responsibility and how you need to take it upon yourself to make what you want. Because if you just sit around waiting for the world to hand you what you want on a silver platter, you're going to be waiting a really long time, probably until you're dead. So I think he and Jordan Peterson both probably had really tremendous impacts on me early on 
And that led to me getting involved in things that have led me to find other people that I look up to and admire. But I'd say they were the impetus for that, without a doubt. Go back to Jordan Peterson. Yeah. What would you say to all the students and all the absolute protesters that get up Jordan Peterson's face Mm -hmm. and protest him? I'd say they need to listen to him because the things that they're protesting him about – he has not been saying. So just just to give the people listening a little bit of clarification. So Jordan Peterson got, I guess you could say, in trouble a couple of years back because Canada was trying to pass Bill C-16, which no, was it where... it wasn't trouble. Huh? It wasn't trouble. I'm saying he got in trouble from the media and from certain people. Not He got picked on. He got picked on, mm-hmm. yeah. And he, he was speaking out against Bill C-16. And what B- Bill C-16 was, was legislation that was introduced that would force people to call transgender people by their preferred pronouns. And the reason Jordan Peterson spoke out against this had nothing to do with the fact that it was related to trans people. He actually went on on one of his videos and several of his podcasts and talked about the fact that, you know, if he had a trans student in his class, he would call them by their preferred pronouns. So it wasn't because he was transphobic, but it was due to the fact that he studied totalitarian and authoritarian regimes his entire life. His house is filled with dozens of Soviet-era paintings of the Soviet Union. The dude is borderline obsessed with studying not only how can we go so wrong, but why do we go so wrong. And what he's found is that one of the first things, one of the first commonalities between these types of regimes is restrictions on freedom of speech. And he deems that as a very, very dangerous thing, no matter the intentions. And that's why he spoke out so strongly against Bill C-16, But because many of the proponents of that bill thought that the only reason you'd oppose that is if you're transphobic, they attacked Jordan for being transphobic. So because of that, he had a lot of protesters at a lot of his events when he wasn't even discussing those sorts of topics. I mean, a lot of the stuff he discusses is psychology and, you know, the the imagery and mythology that goes into formulating our, our psychology as human beings. So he talks a lot about those sort of things, and he would have protested his events sometimes, tremendously loud, tremendously disruptive. There's one that I can think of immediately where he was in a small room with a group of people and they came in and started waving signs. They had air horns. They went up right beside him, blew it in his ear. In front of him, they were holding, I think it was a flag or a banner with the uh, hammer and sickle of the Soviet Union on it. And Jordan Peterson, probably the thing about I respect about him the most was that through all of that, he stayed tremendously calm. And he didn't play their game because he rose above that. And instead, he told his students, he said, I think one thing we need to keep in mind is that while all this was going on in a very calm but loud voice, he kind of yelled out to his students that we need to let this happen because in doing so, they prove just how irrational they actually are. And we need to let them be foolish and let them protest because the louder they are and the, you know, the more ridiculous they get, the more they're going to turn people away from them and towards us. And I think I think that's a very mature and very wise way of looking at those types of situations. And Jordan Peterson really embodies a lot of the traits that I value and I respect in people. Well, and I knew that you listened to Gary Vee, followed him on social media. Mm -hmm. And I remember, oh, it's been, I guess I brought my concern to you over a year ago. And then even within the last six months, I was like, Gary Vee, read between the lines. He, He does not encourage Young people to go to college, and he, 
Okay, and so I, I think you're misrepresenting what he says. No. You, you are. And you so, yourself admit that he was a determining He was a determining voice. role, but this is what he's trying and, to say. And you're not you're misinterpreting. Going back to college. Yeah, I'm not, but you're misinterpreting what he's saying. His whole message the whole time was that you should go to college if it's what you think you need to do in order to do what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Okay? His, his whole idea is that you need to focus your energy since you have a limited amount of energy and a limited amount of time. You need to focus that all towards what you want to do. Right? The more you spread out that energy, the less effective you're going to be at whatever you're doing. So if you're willing to spend four years of your life and $100,000 for a backup plan that you never plan on using, he thinks that's goofy. Now he says, if he says really the only reason you shouldn't go to college is if you have entrepreneurial tendencies and you proved that you're able to do it. I fall into that category. I want to do it. I've proven that I'm capable of doing it. And I know that it's something I want to do for the rest of my life. And his whole mentality is that if those things are true, there's no reason for you to go to college. But do you not think you were going for finance and possibly economics? Do you not think that that paired with you being a licensed realtor wanting to have a your own brokerage one day, do you not think even a degree in business is not an excellent pairing? I don't think it really plays a factor, and I'll tell you why. When I go up to people and I and you know we're working together I've yet to have someone ask me about my college education they don't care they care about the level of service you provide sometimes your your college degree is designed to increase your skills but today there's so many other ways to do that that it's just not necessary for that reason and and I brought up an example to you the other day when you buy something online you don't look up if the founder has a degree you check and see if the products look good and if it's a price you're willing to pay you buy it well, it depends on what the product is. Well, I mean, if they're selling financial services or if they're an accountant or a lawyer, then yeah, you're going to want them to have, you know, a level of formal education. But I don't have interest in those fields. The types of fields that I have interest in, degree isn't required. Okay, well, say someone comes up to you and they're like, son, is this even a good time for me to be buying a house? What What is the market going to do? Now, if you have a degree... You don't learn about that stuff in college. You don't. I've talked to people that are in the graduate program, and I knew more about some elements of finance and economics than they did. And they told me point blank. I don't know how you can even possibly argue with me about the necessity of college. I really don't. Well, it's not not necessary. That's how I can argue. What's that? I'm not happy about it. Well, I know you're not happy about it. How many people? But I can't live my life trying to make everyone happy. Okay. How many people... Have you sought counsel on that you trust? How many people have you gone to and said, hey, this is what I'm doing or this is what I've done. Mm-hmm. Tell me tell me why this is a good idea or tell me why this might not be a good idea. Because I really honestly think you made the decision. Probably about eight. Yourself. Probably about eight people. And were they your age? Three of them were graduate students. One of them was undergraduate. One of them was a teacher. Am I doing the math right? Three under three graduate, one undergraduate. One was a teacher, so that's five. Yeah, and then I guess it'd actually be nine because the other three were real estate agents and brokers. So yeah. And that's not including the people that I follow online that are successful in business. So you break down what everyone said. They Well, they can it can all be summed up in pretty much one thing. 
So I talked with them and I told them what I wanted to do, the types of careers I was interested in. I explained what I was currently doing and I explained what I was majoring in. They looked at me point blank and said, why are you here? And I found that I didn't have a very good answer for that besides, well, my mom and dad want me to be here. Well, you almost had a perfect score on your ACT. Mm -hmm. To me, I think you could have, you could still pursue real estate, but I don't think four years of your life right now is too much to ask for something that might benefit you because even you have said young men and women your age do not necessarily know what they want to do with the rest of Mm -hmm. their life. I know you well enough to know that you have been highly engaged in a couple of career paths, even in high school, Mm -hmm. um, Shopify and some other That's entrepreneurship. That's the same career path. That's not... Shopify isn't a career path. Shopify was a skill I was developing that I thought might lead to money. Didn't work out that way, and I kind of dropped it in pursuit of something else. But that's still in the same but domain. You pursued that. Mm-hmm. You pursued that, risking even your high school education. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw grades affected when you were, you know, studying how to run ads on yeah. Facebook and and marketing mm-hmm. and, and everything like that. So to me, well, I think. I'll say this. I think that tendency has always been there. I've had the tendency to be very obsessive about what I'm passionate about, and I actually think that helps me in a lot of ways. In terms of education, it hurt me. When I was in sports, all of my energy went into that instead of classwork. And when I got into business, all my energy went into that instead of classwork. And, you know, the same thing was true even, you know, through my first year of college. And I started having some success and gaining some traction with it, um, realizing that I could probably be really good at it and getting my goals really formulated. And, the more I thought about it and, you know, talked with different people about it, the more clear the path kind of became to me. And once I realized, you know, kind of what I not only wanted but needed to do, in my opinion, it just became a matter of doing it. The undergraduates and the graduates that you asked. To give you a little clarification, um, one of the graduates that I asked is actually the head yeah. of the entire investing program. The undergraduates and the graduates that you mm-hmm. asked – you're telling me that they advised you to not yes. continue college even though they are continuing yes. college? Because people are different. What one person wants to do doesn't necessarily mean that the other person should do it. College isn't right for everyone. It's right for some people. The graduates I, I talked to were going to go on for internships at Walmart. They were going to go on to corporate jobs and probably be very successful there. I have no interest in doing that. I want to build my own thing. College degrees aren't really that helpful for people that want to build their own thing because the market doesn't care. Degrees are good for getting jobs. They're not good for selling products on the market. That's really the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. Now, of course, there, there are certain domains w- within which a degree is necessary. If college was free, would you still be in college? No. And, and, and we've talked about this before because it, it's not worth the energy to me. It's not worth splitting my time and energy to spend on something that I don't deem valuable, especially for that amount of time. I feel like I can get a lot more done in four years and learn a lot more by being out doing business than in a classroom learning from a professor about business. Mm -hmm. A professor who in some cases, and I'm not saying this is true for all professors, but for some cases is all theory and no no practical you know, implementation. Some of them have never owned a business. Some of them that have aren't successful in it. A lot of them serve in consultative measures and are pretty decent at it. But I'd rather learn from my mistakes and from the market and from people that are in business doing really well than, you know, in a classroom 
And I can learn a lot of those classroom things even from just buying textbooks online. Why would I spend $10,000 on something when I could go and get the textbook for like 200 bucks on eBay? Okay, let's talk about your generation Mm -hmm. and the level of respect they have for others. Yeah. What do you think garners respect from your generation? So it depends on which side you're talking about. Well, actually, it might not. I think the appropriate answer would be outrage. And that might seem a little counterintuitive, but I think the more angry you are at the other side now, the more respect you're given. If you're on the right, the more you attack the left, the more angry you are at them, the more respect you're given. If you're on the left, the more you attack the right, the more you call them out, the more you cancel them, the more respect you're given. Because it's seen that anger shows that you're sincere, because if you're sincere, then you would, of course, be angry, right? So therefore, the more angry you are, the more you lash out, the better of a person you are because the more, the further you're willing to go for your beliefs. So so you're saying that you and your generation have respect for... No, not me. Oh. Not me. Okay. I'm not saying, I'm, I don't condone this. I okay. think it's horrible. Okay. I'm, you just asked me a question about okay. my generation. So the more volatile you can defend your position. It's even that, less about. That appears, mm-hmm. uh, peers will give respect yeah. to you. No, I, I'd say that's accurate. Peers will give respect to you. And I think it's less about defending your position mm-hmm. and more about attacking the other side's position. Okay. And I think the reason that, I see this is. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah. That's an issue. It is an issue. And I think it's very it's a very dangerous issue because. We're getting to the point where people are starting with the presupposition that they're correct mm-hmm. and that anyone that disagrees with them under that presupposition that they're correct must be a bad person. And because of that, they're willing to go to extreme lengths to attack them and humiliate them to get them to change their ways and to show that it is culturally inappropriate for them to act that way. So it's this very dangerous thing. And I think that goes back to entitlement. People think they're right. They're very emotionally convicted in their beliefs, even if they're not fully formed or fully articulated and well thought out. So instead of engaging in active dialogue with one another in a way to find what's true, we're starting with the idea that we're right and then forcing everything into that idea. Anything that doesn't fit, we're calling it evil. We're calling it bad. Let's attack it. Let's destroy it and get rid of it. And we're seeing that at large in our society right now. Well, I think I think all sides do that. If it's not, Oh, yeah. All sides do it. If if it's if it's not their conviction, then it then it's evil. And I think we need to be careful of that. And that's something I've been trying to be more careful of lately because it's easy to even fall into that trap condemning that sort of behavior because you don't want to become what you're speaking out against. So, like, it's really easy when you speak out against group identity to practice in that same sort of behavior mm-hmm. by saying, well, all these people are doing this. Mm-hmm. You're doing the same thing. It's a very dangerous game. And humans, I think, are just naturally predispositioned towards that because, you know, we existed in relatively small groups for a very long time. And our survival depended on the ability of us to survive as a unit against outside, you know, tribes. It, it, I mean, it's called tribalism. And we still orient ourselves that way. And we still see people that are different from us as potential threats. And that's just biologically in us. And it takes a lot to actively address that and ensure that it doesn't boil over into violence. And I think that's why we sometimes have a disposition to see groups instead of individuals. 
even though we know that organizing a society along the lines of the individual is a far better way. And biologically speaking, we do live as individuals first and the collective comes second. But we need to be very careful as a society not to flip that around because once you do, all hell breaks loose and it tends to escalate to violence and sometimes very horrible, horrible things. I think everyone, see, I'm grouping everyone together. It's such an easy thing to do. I think there is a notion that if you're not for us, you're against us. Yeah. And I don't know. Let's talk about capitalism versus socialism. Okay. So I'm actually glad you just kind of segued into that because what I was about to say actually kind of relates to that. So Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, and it's a form of cultural Marxism. So pretty much what that is is seeing the world as nothing but a series of groups and all action and all dialogue within those groups is meant to retain or gain power. So I think that ideology has penetrated both sides. So we're seeing that any time a member of the opposing side speaks up, it's not as in, in an effort, it's not seen by the opposing side as an effort to find truth and to like really have a civil dialogue. It's seen by the opposing side as an effort of them to retain their power and oppress others. So that's why we see this unwillingness to really have a civil debate because you start the presupposition that you're right. Anyone else that speaks out simply wants to retain their power over you. So therefore, dialogue isn't necessary because it's not possible. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And yeah, let's get into capitalism versus socialism because that's probably my favorite topic to talk about because I do a lot of research on that and I find it interesting. Well, I think if I was guessing what your generation mm-hmm. was moving towards and their desire would be socialism. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with entitlement. People don't think we've had it so good in this country for so long. We have so much wealth and just really amazing things in general that people don't realize really the underlying economic forces and history that's gone into creating this. So I think that creates a lot of entitlement because people look around and they see so much wealth and they think, well, why don't I have that? And then when you present them with something as powerful of an argument as well, it's because you're being oppressed by the wealthy and they're taking what is rightfully yours. That's a very powerful argument in two ways. Because one, it gives you permission to be resentful. And two, it allows you to mask that resentfulness with compassion, which gives you, you know, this moral superiority complex. It's a very powerful one-two punch. And there's a reason that this ideology has persisted for so long, even though it's been failed so, so many times by so many different nations. And that's because it's it's a very hard one to shake because it, it really taps into two of our core emotions. Well, I don't think your generation acknowledges, if they go back through their lineage, three mm-hmm. generations, you know, how much it has taken, you know, what was their grandfather and grandmother's Most of them were lifestyle. dirt poor immigrants mm-hmm. from okay. Europe. So, you know, there was a struggle. And mm-hmm. then their children, which would be their, their parents, got a little bit better for them. Mm-hmm. And now this generation is living in a pretty comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. And so they have not known the struggles. They have not mm-hmm. known the hardships. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't want to say everyone, but yeah, a, a majority. Yeah, and I, I want to be careful not to depersonalize it because yes. even in a great overall great society like we have and i say great not because i don't see the issues we have i say great because historically speaking western civilization has been the most prosperous and equal society in human history so we're doing about as good as anyone else ever has and we're trying to become better but it happens one step at a time i know that you are well read yeah and that you are for a free market Mm -hmm. why 
We could go into that a lot. This is what I'll say. I, I think a free market best allows the natural human to flourish. Because pretty much what a free market is, is just the ability of individuals to conduct involuntary, mutually beneficial transactions with one another. And when I say mutually beneficial, a lot of people don't understand what that means. And it relates to this idea of something called subjective value, which basically says that in order for you to form a transaction with another person, both of you must benefit or otherwise you wouldn't voluntarily engage in that transaction. So, for example, let's say that I'm giving you $5 for, you know, a loaf of bread. Just make it really simple. That would mean that I value the loaf of bread more than the $5 and you value the $5 more than the loaf of bread. Otherwise, neither one of us would be willing to give it up, which means that by engaging in this transaction, we are both benefiting subjectively. That's one of the reasons I like capitalism because I think it is the natural it is the natural application of freedom and consent to the economic process. Two, capitalism has historically been shown to be the largest driver of human well-being in history. The most prosperous societies, the most equal societies, the most progressive societies in history have all been capitalist, at least in large part. Now, of course, a purely capitalist nation has never truly existed, just like a purely communist nation by theory has never existed. But free markets form the basis of any true prosperous society, and Milton Friedman actually talked about this. He said, you won't always see freedom where you see capitalism, but anywhere you see freedom, you'll see capitalism. Capitalism is a necessary precondition to true freedom because it is the idea of freedom applied to economic exchange. There's a lot of also more in-depth economic reasons why capitalism works better, one of which is something known as the knowledge problem. T to understand how this works, you kind of need to understand the role that prices play in a capitalist economy. So you might think, you know, what are prices? Um, the average person will say, well, prices are just something that producers determine to, you know, make a profit. Not exactly. Prices are arrived at through supply and demand. So anytime the supply rises relative to demand, prices are going to go down. Anytime the demand rises relative to supply, prices are going to go up. And in a capitalist economy, this serves a purpose. Because the goal of any economy is to efficiently allocate resources to best meet human desires because we have limited resources and each human has unlimited wants. We're never happy. We always want more. We want something more to benefit us. So a good economy is going to efficiently allocate resources to best meet those unlimited human desires with limited resources, which means we need to know where we need to put certain resources that have alternate uses and we need to know how much to allocate to different, to different purposes. Prices serve this purpose because what prices do is they signal underlying supply and demand. So just to give you an example of how this works, let's say you want to build let's say you want to build a train track from city A to city B. In between city A and city B there's a mountain. Okay? So you have two options. You can either go through the mountain, which is going to use less steel and more engineering, or you can go around the mountain, which is going to use more steel and less engineering. How do you know which one is better for society? Well, you can theorize that well, we want to use more of the material that is less valued because by doing that, we're freeing up the more valued material for other uses in the economy, which is going to benefit us all. In the absence of prices, you have no way of making that decision, which is the fundamental issue that communist and socialist countries run into because by abolishing the market for goods, 
you eliminate the ability of prices to form. When you eliminate the ability of prices to form, you have no way of knowing what is the better option when you're faced with different resources to use. In a capitalist economy, there are prices associated with both engineering and labor. And by choosing whichever route is cheaper, you free up the more valued resource to be used somewhere else in the economy in a more valued way. So let's say, for example, that engineering was cheaper. So you're going to go through the mountain, you're going to free up steel, and that steel is going to be used to build a bridge in New York City. If you had used that steel um, in a socialist economy, you wouldn't have known that you were using more than necessary. But now that bridge can be built because there's not enough steel for it. And now people have to go by boat across or something like that. So that's just one example. But it's that concept applied at large that makes capitalist economies so efficient because we're able to use our limited resources in the most valuable ways possible through the pricing mechanism. In the absence of markets and voluntary exchanges, prices can't be formed accurately. And because of that, you can't efficiently allocate resources, which is why, for example, the Soviet Union, by the end of, towards the end of its reign, two Soviet economists actually wrote a book. I can't remember what the book is called off the top of my head, but they said, and I might be getting these stats somewhat wrong, but it's, it's pretty close. They said that by the end of the Soviet Union, for every one unit of economic output, they were using twice as much energy as the United States. Hmm. So they were using almost twice as much resources for every one unit of economic output, which just went to show how wasteful they were. Because what they would do is they didn't know how much they needed to produce of anything. It was determined by a central planning committee. And because there wasn't like free exchange, there weren't prices. So they kind of just had to make arbitrary decisions about what to produce and how much. So one example is that I think they overproduced like roofing nails by like 5 million. They made 5 million too much. And because of that, they couldn't make enough of, I think it was the other type of nails. So they ended up with having to use roofing nails for purposes they weren't supposed to be made for. So just a lot of examples like that is really what makes a capitalist economy best for society as a whole. And another thing that's really, really important, the only way for someone to get wealthy in a market economy is by providing something of value to society as a whole. Capitalism allows us to harness our self-interest to benefit society. And that is a very, very powerful thing. So I, I always get, I wouldn't say defensive, but I question people that, you know, kind of lash out at the wealthy for having so much money. Because, you know, for example, Jeff Bezos, wealthiest man on the planet. And there are a lot of people that say, well, he doesn't deserve to have that much wealth. That's immoral. They're like, he needs to give back to society. I'm like, the reason he got that much money is because he solved a very, very valuable problem to society, which is that we're tired of having to leave our house to go somewhere and shop. He, he provided such an element of convenience to our consumer culture. And because he solved that problem, people were willing to give him money for that solution. And that's how he got wealthy. He didn't go to anyone and take it from them. He provided something of value that people deemed valuable enough to spend their money on. And I also think that having extremely wealthy entrepreneurs is actually a sign of the health of an economy because it says that, you know, the average person has money to spend on consumer products and services that enrich their lives. So it's actually a sign that we're in a pretty good spot as a nation because we have money to go out and spend on Amazon. We're not worrying about, you know, not being able to eat or something like that. Well, that's a good point. I mean, he wouldn't have the money unless we were spending it. Yeah. And we obviously have the money to spend. Yeah. So through that, you can deduce the fact that we have enough money to spend on things that make our lives better. Mm -hmm. And 
being envious that we willingly gave up that money for something which we valued just doesn't make sense to me. We talked about Republican and Democrat. Do you think there's any middle ground where can they integrate at all to be better? Okay, I'll say this. I'm not convinced the Republican Party is really pro-capitalist. Here's why. A lot of very Republican presidents have introduced a lot of very anti-capitalist legislation. So a few examples that immediately come to mind. So probably the biggest element of um, the American brand of capitalism that is the root cause of a lot of the criticisms of capitalism isn't a capitalist structure. So what I'm talking about is the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank. Both of these are core tenets of actually socialism, not laissez-faire capitalism. And they are the root cause of a lot of the issues that people blame capitalism for in America. So one example is going to be the crippling recessions that we have from time to time. That's a direct result of the Federal Reserve, not capitalism run amok. So a very common criticism of capitalism is the 08 recession. Because people say, well, banks got greedy and they took too much risk. And it's just an example of capitalism run amok. Here's the question that I want to ask these people. Why did the bank suddenly decide to get greedy? Have they not been greedy the whole time? Are they not still greedy? Why was that only an issue in 08? Well, here's the reason why. For about 20 years before the 08 recession, the United States had been directly incentivizing mortgage lenders to make mortgages to underqualified buyers. And they did this through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So both of those are private organizations that exist on a government charter, which means that they're actually directly influenced by the government. And I think it was Bush, actually, that passed a legislation that required them to purchase, I think at the time it was like 20 or 30% of their mortgages, but they had to be from unqualified buyers or low-income borrowers, which otherwise wouldn't have qualified for those mortgages. Because he wanted to provide housing? He wanted to create, he wanted to incentivize low-income housing. And that sounds like a really good thing if you don't understand economics. So in doing so, what he did is he created an incentive for banks to lower their lending standards. And in doing so, they started making a lot of bad mortgages that they wouldn't have otherwise made because they knew that as soon as they did so, they could just sell them off to the government and not have to worry about it. And what the government did with those mortgages, because under any other normal circumstances, they'd be considered risky, they repackaged them into something known as collateralized debt or CD, collateralized debt obligations. And these are the financial instruments that caused the 08 recession. Because what it was is they took all these bad mortgages, they layered them on top of each other, thousands of them. And then they said, because there were thousands of them, it's technically diversified, which means it's safe. In the 08 recession, what happened is we saw that all these people that have been getting mortgages that otherwise wouldn't have qualified for them actually weren't qualified for them, believe it or not. And they couldn't pay their mortgage. And I don't blame these people. If the government comes up to you and offers you money, any reasonable person is going to take it. I don't blame you know, low-income people for this at all. I blame the government for creating a mechanism through which this happened. But when those mortgages started to fail, those extremely complex financial instruments started to fail on top of it. And because the, those financial instruments were so big and the banks had hedged so much against them, it pretty much bankrupted the banks almost instantly. And then the entire financial system began, began to collapse. And the United States government response to that was to bail those banks out for some reason, even though under capitalism, what you need to do if you want to preserve what makes the free market great, you need to allow what is broken to fail or else 
you're only inflating the bubble even larger. But they never allowed that to happen. They used taxpayer dollars to bail out the banks. And well, some might say, why didn't they, instead of bailing out the banks, mm-hmm. some would have said, why not pay off those people's mortgages? Well, let's say this, okay? So if they had paid off those people's mortgages, it still wouldn't have fixed the underlying reality that those mortgages never should have been made in the first place. Because by doing so, what they're doing is they're inefficiently allocating resources beyond what they would have been otherwise in a free market. So in a free market, that money that... Let's say, let's just say that that happened. Let's say the government goes and spends that money to pay off those people's mortgages. Okay. What they've done is taken that money that could have been used somewhere else in, in the economy to a productive way. And they've artificially used it in another way. And what that does is that restricts our productive growth potential by not allowing that money to be used as investment into something else. Does that make sense? What, what, I don't want the government to have to bail anyone out. I want the government to stop implementing programs that require us to bail people out. And that take our taxes. Yeah, that'd be great. And also don't debase our currency while you're at it. Because what happens is whenever they implement all this massive spending, they're not taking in enough taxes to do it. So what they do is they sell off government bonds. And then in a few years when those bonds become due, they print off money to pay off that debt. So all this financial deficit which apparently neither party is really that concerned about anymore. The Republicans really aren't that concerned about it anymore. They used to be a little more fiscally conservative. They're slowly not becoming that way. It's it's not going to be good, especially for elderly people in a society. Anyone with savings, the actual monetary value of those savings are slowly decreasing each and every year due to the government spending. And the money that you're earning is becoming less and less valuable, and you're going to be able to buy less and less with it. And it's a very dangerous game they're playing with our currency. And some of the largest empires in human history have been toppled because of currency debasement. For example, Germany, what gave rise to Adolf Hitler was an economic depression they had in which their currency hyperinflated by about, I don't remember the percentage, but I know that at one point it cost them $15 million in German currency to like buy a loaf of bread. Like they were showing up to the grocery stores with barrels of money. They were burning it because it made more sense to burn the paper currency than to buy firewood. That's a very real situation. It's very plausible. And it can give rise to very bad, bad governments. What do you think about the past stimulus check and the one that's being considered now? So I think the stimulus check doesn't get under the underlying reality, which is that money does you no good if there's nothing being produced to spend that money on. And also on top of that, the government has no money to be spending. By doing so, they're giving us money now at the expense of economic prosperity later. They're mortgaging the present at the expense of the future. So they're giving us money now to get us through this. But it's going to come with a cost that I deem to be much worse than what would be otherwise felt if we just let the economy sort itself out now. What is that future cost? Well, it's inflation, which is what I was just talking about. I mean, when you spend money you don't have, the government is forced to, at one point or another, print that money. And whenever you add something to a supply, it's what I talked about earlier. When you increase supply relative to demand, the value goes down. And the same thing is true with currency. And that's why a lot of people that kind of subscribe to a similar school of economic thought as I do, 
find a lot of value in going back to a commodity-based money system because it would control inflation. For example, the U.S. used to be on the gold standard. A lot of people have talked about, you know, would there be value in returning to that and controlling what we're seeing now by reducing the ability of the U.S. government to just print off money whenever they want to. Um, And it's a very serious issue that really not a lot of politicians are talking about on neither side. I mean, Trump used to talk about it, but the deficits expanded under him larger than it did under Obama. So it's kind of all chatter and not really any work being done. And he's only made that worse by cutting taxes without cutting spending. That's the biggest fault, I think, of conservatives that I've seen, you know, in past history. And it's kind of what happened with Reagan, too. It's why a lot of people said Reaganomics didn't work, because he didn't cut he didn't really cut spending, he cut taxes. And you can't cut taxes without cutting spending. So if I was ever, if I ever found myself in office, that'd be my first focus was cutting spending. If I had to do anything, it'd be that, which would allow for cutting taxes later on. But you can't put the cart, you can't put the horse before the buggy. What are three books you would recommend to your generation to read? Okay, number one, Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell, brilliant economist, I think he's something like 90 years old now, so it's really sad that we're probably going to lose him soon. But he has a really interesting story, and I'll, I'll tell it to you real quick because it's really fast. So he grew up in Harlem during—he was born during the Jim Crow era now. That wasn't in effect in Harlem because he was in the North, but he grew up in Harlem. And he said, actually, it used to not be that bad of a place. He said you could actually go and you know sleep outside and walk across the park at night and not have to worry about anything. But he said, look at it now, and it's dangerous, but— it's kind of aside from the point. So he spent a lot of his youth as a Marxist, actually, and he was kind of a communist. And he trained at the University of Chicago under Milton Friedman, which is like the god of capitalism, you could say. And that wasn't enough to persuade him out of Marxism. But he said what actually did end up persuading him out of Marxism, he went for a summer and he went for a summer internship with the government. And he said that was enough to convince him that government should not be in control of our economy. Because he said what had happened was they were trying to get numbers on why sugarcane prices, I think, had dropped somewhere in the Caribbean. And there had been a hurricane. And everyone was saying, well, they've dropped because, you know, producers have done... No, I think they'd went up. And everyone was trying to figure out, well, they're just going up because producers have, you know, they're trying to price gouge everyone. And Thomas Sowell was like, well, why don't we just see how much of the crop was destroyed so we can see if the price increases due to supply and demand. And he said, everyone just looked at them like, this guy has just stumbled upon something that will cost us all our jobs. And he said his response never got back to him. He requested the information, never heard back. He said that was enough to convince him that people in government have their own interests. And the government is not just this collective will of the people. It's people with their own aspirations, their own self-interests. And we need to be aware of that. So I would definitely recommend his book. That's one of the first economics books I read. And it's really really insightful in a lot of different ways. And what I talked with you about the purpose of prices, that comes from what I read in Thomas Sowell's book and some other stuff, but it's a really good introduction of that sort of thing. Another book I'd recommend, it's hard to pick, just two other ones. Oh, there is a good one, and I think this can be applied for anyone. It's called The Power of Habit, and it's about how we develop and can break old habits and how we can develop new ones. And it's very scientifically rigorous so it's not like pseudoscience or any of this like motivational hype talk it's actually backed by science and psychology and i think habits really determine the outcome of our lives so i'd recommend that for everyone and then probably the third book i'd recommend is jordan peterson's 12 rules for life 
I think what he outlines in that book is a really good foundation for you to build your life upon. And he goes really deep into the purpose and the reasoning why he chose those rules and how they can serve you in your life and why they're so important both now and going into the future, not only for you as an individual, but through you, society as a whole. I want you to know that I am personally hurt that you didn't mention me as one of your role models. Well, I mean, I kind of thought that was a given. I mean, your parents kind of have a very big influence on that. I was just trying to think of people outside of my immediate circle that have influenced me. But yeah, you and you and my dad have been very big, especially when I was younger and developing like an interest in things and the ability to think independently. And work ethic was a big one as well. So definitely owe a lot to you guys on that part. Would you raise your children the same or differently? I'd say a lot of the elements would be the same. Hmm. That's a tough one because I, I really don't regret anything about my childhood. You know, I, I think it really formed me into who I am today, and I'm pretty happy with who I am and who I'm becoming. That's a tough question. I'd say if I were to do anything differently, if I were to do anything differently, I might just expose them to a little more earlier on in terms of, like, different types of interests and stuff like that. Oh, I did. I know. I was stubborn, I though. I was stubborn. play along. Yeah. Which, I mean, maybe that's a good thing in the long <laughs> in the long run of things. Well, I mean, you cannot, you can't force someone to do something they don't want yeah. to do if they, if they don't see the value mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And, you know, at that age, you don't, you don't have the mindset to yeah. see the value in anything. Yeah. You know, so it's difficult. Yeah. It's I mean, difficult. I think you guys, I think you guys did a really good job at raising me in all, in all honesty. Final thoughts about your generation or to your generation. We have to be more nuanced in our approach to solving problems than simply tearing down the entire system. And we need to replace the ego-driven goal of being right with the, with the better goal of finding the truth. Because if we don't, we risk, we risk losing the ability to communicate in a way that allows mutual ground to be found upon which society is built. Otherwise, we're just going to tear ourselves apart. And outrage isn't the answer, but having discussions is. And I think we all need to educate ourselves better on the issues which face us and not be so ready to form such strong emotional opinions about things without knowing the actual facts. I think that's probably what I'd say. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It was fun. You've been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be. And listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you. 